the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, Lee Rawls, and today I'm joined by Margaret A. Burnham, author of the new book, By Hands Now Known, Jim Crow's Legal Executioners. Margaret, thanks so much for joining us. I'm thrilled to be here, Lee. First off, can you explain to my listeners a little bit about who you are and what your career has been? Surely. Uh, I am a lawyer, have been a lawyer for many, many years. At one point, I practiced civil rights law in a small firm in Boston. I have served as a judge here in Boston, returned to practice after I left my judgeship, and eventually made my way to the academy. And it's at the academy that I started this project that is uh, the work of which is reflected in the book by Hands Now Known. First off, let's talk about the title, By Hands Now Known. How did you come to that? By Hands Now Known is a play on the term by hands unknown. The term was used by prosecutors uh, and other legal officials whose responsibility it was to determine uh, who the players were when a racial homicide took place or when any homicide took place in jurisdictions in the South and elsewhere in the country. Oftentimes, although many, many community members would participate uh, in these events and would, you know, perhaps not be responsible for the ultimate killing, but perhaps throw a stone, for example, if you think about a a death by uh, by by stoning, you know, many, many people would participate. uh, But at the end of the day, the coroner or whoever the judicial official was uh, who whose job it was to determine the nature Uh, of the homicide, whether uh, murder or otherwise, uh, would rule the case deemed uh, to be by hands unknown. So my title really reflects our new knowledge about who the players actually were in these uh, events. And the second part of the title, Jim Crow's Legal Executioners, really borrows from a book uh, that published a a number of years ago titled Hitler's Willing Executioners. And here, I suggest that uh, this was uh, not only the, the the behavior of individuals who I'm focusing on in the book, uh, but as as well, I'm looking at the at the systems that uh, led to the the, the kind of uh, rampant and extraordinary violence that I discuss in this book. And when you talk about the systems, certainly you discuss you know court cases, um, actual you know lawyers or judges or policemen. But what I also found striking was how in a lot of the cases that you look at, essentially any white person felt themselves deputized to enact violence on Black citizens to uphold whatever the white supremacist goals were. Can you talk a little bit about the everyday people who participated in this, not just people who actually acted under the force of law? Yes, I use bus transportation as a container to describe the uh, racial relations as they were mediated by law and by Jim Crow customs and norms. We all know about the front of the bus and the back of the bus. And what I suggested in the book is that someone had to monitor that line, that race line between front and back of the bus. That fell to the bus driver. So it turned the bus driver essentially into a police officer. 
bus drivers across the South were weaponized. They carried guns. There's no reason for a bus driver to carry a gun unless the bus driver uh, has to enforce the law. And indeed, the bus driver was the enforcer of the law. I also suggest they carry this notion of uh, white enforcers uh, without badges to the sidewalks of uh, cities where uh, towns and cities uh, where white people enforce the norms and practices and and rules of the sidewalk. You know, black folk had to step aside when white people passed by. And if they didn't do so, um, they could be uh, punished for that, punished by any other pedestrian on the sidewalk, as well as by uh, officials of the law police office and others. What you have to imagine, Lee, is a world in which, and this is unimaginable in our own day, we can't escape our own time. And that's one reason for the book is to give which race was the, the predominant divider. And on one side of that line lay all of the law for everything having to do with law, uh, the creation of law, um, the enforcement of law, uh, all were in the hands of one race and not the other. Um, so if you think about, you know, the road from, um, say, a crime commission or, uh, or alleged crime commission to, to jail, um, that road was paved exclusively by white people. There were white police officers, white prosecutors, white defense lawyers, white judges, white legislators passing the laws, and white appellate courts. At no point in this uh, system did you have any kind of representation. And that's a system in which uh, violence can prevail unchecked. And so I discuss not only the consequences of dis disenfranchising African-American communities uh, in the South, and here I'm talking about the South, but also um, the, the, the relationship between the violence that persisted and prevailed on account of this disenfranchisement, and also the way in which violence begins to reinforce the political exclusion and disenfranchisement of African-American communities. These two things worked hand in hand. So the book, the purpose of the book, the intent of the book, the argument of the book, if you will, is that, you know, you had a uh, system of governance that was in all respects autocratic, residing or sitting within what purported to be a national democratic polity. And I argue as well that uh, the federal government could have been a backstop. Uh, you know, if you think about that road again, you know, from arrest to, to jail, you know, the federal government she, uh, clearly uh, could have been a backstop here, but the federal government wasn't. Now, of course, I'm not just, I'm not, this book is really not about the prosecution of African-Americans, but rather about the failure to guarantee constitutional rights, and in particular, um, the right to live uh, free, of, free of racial violence. Well, one thing I really appreciated about the book, and just for context for both Margaret and my listeners, I was born in 1980, so I went to public school during the 80s and 90s. And one thing that we were not taught, really, as part from, I would say, the civil rights era that we, you know, the of the 50s and 60s, it was never discussed the kinds of resistance efforts that took place prior to what we call the civil rights era now. And those events, those things did happen. And you talk about uh, the very brave Black Americans who, who pushed back and who resisted in a number of different ways. Can you just talk a little bit about 
your focus on resistance? Because you say you in the in the book, you say you're going for three interrelated themes. One is federalism, as you mentioned. The second is racial violence. But that third of resistance, I think, is, you know, just such valuable information. Can you talk about that resistance portion? Right. So, yeah, as you say, uh, Lee, we, we're very familiar with the resistance that characterized the classic traditional civil rights movement, 1954 to 1967 is the kind of uh, period, uh, uh, the, the period that uh, historians talk about uh, marked by the passage of Brown and Board of Education and then at declining years of the murder of Martin Luther King and uh, Robert Kennedy in the late 60s. So we we all appreciate the the and the the, the power and force of that movement and the changes it wrought in law, the civil rights uh, laws that uh, really have defined our civil rights uh, landscape ever since were passed in the 1960s as a result of uh, nationwide uh, resistance to uh, to Jim Crow and to the racist structures that um, that supported African American subordination, but historians have also characterized the earlier moments uh, in the 1940s and the 1930s as the long civil rights struggle. So the struggle, the struggle that we associate with uh, Rosa Parks and with others, Martin Luther King, Rosa Parks. Fred Shuttlesworth and others that emerges in the 1950s obviously doesn't come from nowhere. Uh, it comes from a, a, a gathering voice and a, a, a gathering uh, forms of resistance, both radical and reformist forms of resistance um, that develop across the 1930s, associated with the labor movement in the 1930s. Then you get into the 1940s, obviously, the anchor for the 1940s is the war and the fact that um, so many African-American, uh, African-Americans, both men and women, were in, engaged in the war effort as uh, either as soldiers or otherwise. Uh, so many people went abroad, uh, African-Americans and others go abroad, abroad. They're transformed by those experiences. They come back home. Uh, they see that there are other modes of living, um, that there are uh, ways of living in which, uh, in which race uh, is, does not become the, the, uh, the pre- predominant definer of rights. Uh, and they come back and the, the soldiers and others begin to, two things happen. One is the soldiers begin to assert their rights to demand to vote. Voting Rights Act would never have been uh, passed without the active participation uh, and ag- active and aggressive militants of soldiers uh, coming home from World War World War II. Uh, and the other thing is that there's a lot of talk about demo- about democracy that is, you know, car- uh, global uh, global uh, narratives around democracy um, that come from the rejection of Nazism in the ninth in, in in connection with World War II. Uh, and so, what kind of democracy do we really have? Democracy at home? Can it? Can you possibly say um, that you have democracy if so many of your citizens are not even able to protect themselves and their property uh, from white violence? Um, so all of these things to to combine and become a a quite combustible mix when you finally get to the 1950s and when people finally say enough is enough and you have citizens across the country uh, joining those in the South in the in the marches, um, Selma to Montgomery and other marches um, that are so Birmingham marches um, that are so well known to to uh, to those uh, like yourself uh, who learned about the civil rights movement in high school. 
Well, we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsor. When we return, I'm going to be asking Margaret Burnham about another George Floyd. Get civil and you get a fast, custom-built website that looks great, brings you clients, and drops them right into your firm's systems. Civil partners perfectly with small firms by building the fastest sites in legal, handling digital marketing, enhancing your leads, and providing transparent analytics. They're civil to your other tech, too. Civil websites integrate with all legal case management systems, including Clio, Smokeball, MyCase, and Lawmatics. Get a free site audit with a no-obligation 15-minute demo about what Civil can do for your website. GetCivil.com. That's G-E-T-C-I-V-I-L-L-E.com. All rise with Civil. Delegate out those tasks that take up your time. Staffy can help you with your legal, administrative, marketing, and even client-facing workload. Hiring Staffy's top-notch bilingual virtual staff means Staffy does the recruiting, hiring, and training for you. Then, if you need a change, Staffy handles it. You get to concentrate on your strategic work. Schedule a free consultation at staffy.cc. That's S-T-A-F-I dot C-C and get $500 off with code HAPPY24. Welcome back to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, Lee Rawls, here with Margaret Burnham, author of By Hands Now Known. Now, Margaret, something striking that you found was that in your research, you came across the story of another George Floyd. Now, we know George Floyd, who tragically passed away, uh, was, was murdered in 2020. But can you tell the story of the other George Floyd? Yes, Lee. So let me just say that in connection with work that resulted in the book, we also created an archive of 1,000 cases of racially motivated homicides from the Jim Crow South from the period 1930 to 1954. And your readers might be interested in seeing what's in that archive. Lots of federal documents, lots of local documents, lots of remembrances from family members, over uh, 25,000 documents included in the archive. They can find the archive at crjarchive.org. Well, so as we collected this material and began to sort through it, when the events of 2020 in Minneapolis occurred, I said, I, I said to myself, I wonder if we have a George Floyd. And sure enough, we did. We had a file on a man who died in St. Augustine, Florida in 1945, whose name was George Floyd. And so we dug a little deeper, developed his case, and learned that it had been buried, um, that it had essentially disappeared from the long archive of civil rights history and from what we now know about police brutality over the years. So let me just say a word about who this George Floyd. I call him George Floyd number one. He lived on a farm, a turpentine farm, outside of St. Augustine. He's not a young man. He's in his 50s. This is a Saturday night. He goes into town with his brothers, and obviously some liquor is involved. He gets stopped for drunk driving uh, and taken down to the local uh, jail by a police officer. Uh, and he searched once. And then when the jailer tries to search him a second time, he protests. Uh, and there, right at the jail, the arresting officer in front of all of the 
other inmates and the and the and the other police officers beat George, beats George Floyd to death. That's all we know about the case. And we know that because someone in St. Augustine wrote a letter to the NAACP and asked them to look into this. They didn't have time or money or the wherewithal to do so. So we really know very, very little about whether the officer was ever uh, made to respond, made to answer, uh, either in a court or in a disciplinary proceeding or before his chief uh, was ever made to answer for the death of George Floyd number one. We don't know where George Floyd number one was buried. We know that he was married and that his wife passed away shortly after. We can surmise that it was the grief and horror of her husband's death that led to her own death. You know, I I close the book with the story of George Floyd, number one, because part of the reason for writing this book is not only to detail and uh, and canvas and gather a, a more comprehensive understanding of what the law was doing and what legal actors, judges and others were doing during this time, federal and otherwise, uh, but it's also to provide a, a decent source of a memory for George Floyd, the George Floyd's number one of the world, who are not resting in peace. And this book is an effort to lift up their names, to acknowledge that they died in a different time, in a different system, and to include that in the vast and complex fabric of American history. And while we grieve the people who were killed, so many of them, probably the absolute majority of them, left behind family members, loved ones, people who never received any sort of official justice. When you were doing your research for the book and when you're gathering these documents, you interview family members, survivors, people who witnessed things decades ago, but can now tell you their version. Someone is finally interested in their version. What is that research like? What's it been like for you? And what has been the response that you've seen from these loved ones who lost lost people that they loved without any sort of recourse? So we were obviously not in a position to interview the family members of the of the thousand individuals whose cases are included in our archive. But we did travel all across the country. Uh, obviously, the, many of these folks were swept up in the in the Great Migration, and many of them were pushed out of the South and settled in uh, elsewhere in the country. And we were able to find them and to gather and collect uh, their memories, uh, precious they were to those families, their memories, their photographs. Uh, family mo- members would bring out, you know, uh, dog-eared, yellowed newspaper articles about the cases that they had uh, retained. And we would be able to share with them the documents from the federal government, whether the FBI or the DOJ, which were far more detailed, maybe not not always far more attuned to, to what actually occurred, to the truth of what actually happened. Uh, but they would include, but the federal records, obviously, they include um, names, places, interviews made t- taken by the FBI and that sort of thing. And so the family members are very, very 
grateful to have a fuller picture of what transpired in this case, which is not to say that all these cases were investigated by the federal government. Most of them were not. But where the DOJ was involved, and usually if the DOJ was involved, it was because their participation was triggered by by advocacy organizations like Thurgood Marshall at the NAA and other advocacy organizations writing and demanding federal participate, federal engagement with these cases. So the family members were equal partners with us in this work. Uh, the family members have come together to form an organization called the Legacy Coalition, uh, which uh, is designed to fight for some sort of repair for those families who lost their loved ones. Repair looks different for every single family member. For some family members, who many of whom lost uh, not only their loved ones, but any property that their loved ones may have, may have accumulated during their lifetime, also gone, uh, gas stations, uh, farms, uh, all kinds of uh, property was, was lost when uh, people were killed in these, in these incidents and their family members oftentimes had to scatter in order to protect their own lives. Um, so family members are deeply interested in First of all, the acknowledging that this, that these events took place, and I think our book and our archive goes some way towards that. But obviously, they were interested as well in some more public and formal and official uh, acknowledgement uh, of what transpired. Uh, and I make an argument in the book for reparations for this particular group of survivors of Jim Crow violence. Obviously, there's lots of reparations talk going on now, much debate and discourse around the question of, you know, how and who and when uh, and, uh, and, and not, not, not to mention why, obviously. Uh, and these, uh, this discourse will continue. Lawyers have a lot to contribute to it because we are accustomed to figuring out questions like, you know, uh, commensurability and, uh, you know, limitations periods and that sort of thing, all of which constitutional questions, equal protection questions, all of which bear on the larger reparations issue. Uh, but here I argue we're dealing with a, a discrete and definable group of individuals whose losses are calculable and uh, where the family members, since these events occurred in the 1940s, where family members' descendants are still alive. We're not talking about the descendants of slavery going back, you know, uh, multi-generations. This is multi, but it's not multi-multi-generations back. Uh, we can identify these people, we can appreciate their loss, and we can all agree, every American can agree that a system where the courtroom door uh, was closed to these uh, folks is not a system that meets American ideals and expectations, uh, and therefore they are entitled to recompense of some sort. And I'd like to ask you a question um, outside of just American reckoning with our own history. In, I believe, the 1990s, you were involved in South Africa, post-apartheid South Africa, in the beginnings of their truth and reconciliation movement and campaign. What do you think you learned from that process and how do you think it can be applied or if you know not directly applied, what you think we should look for if as a nation we can put together our own truth and reconciliation process? Yeah, thank you for that, uh, Lee. That was uh, for me a um, a real crossroads in in my career. 
everything I've learned about transitional justice and reparative justice starts with that uh, investigation in South Africa, which I undertook on behalf of President Nelson Mandela in 1991-1992. My job there was to determine whether or not the African National Congress, which uh, which had not yet gained uh, electoral power, but uh, was on the verge of doing so, had committed human rights violations in the states surrounding South Africa, where many uh, members of the ANC had fled and been tortured um, by the ANC because many of them, some perhaps rightly so, some not, were suspected of being spies for the South African police. So that was our our mission and our remit was to uh, travel uh, to these states and I, I and, and to determine what happened to these young men who had crossed the borders. So I got to understand, first of all, the complexity of this question that victims can also be perpetrators so that many of the uh, folks who were who we were looking at uh, who had been victimized by torture, it turns out, uh, had in fact committed crimes that later came to light uh, in the hearings of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And I also got to appreciate how fragile any truth process can be. Uh, And I think uh, that is really uh, borne out by uh, circumstances in South Africa today. Um, So you had a truth, a wonderful truth commission led by uh, Bishop Tutu, but there were certain things that the commit the certain objectives that the commission had set out for itself but did not reach. And one of those was providing adequate material support to those who had suffered under the South African regime. So obviously that becomes an important dynamic and an important dimension of any kind of truth commission. And the United States is a big and complicated country, as we well know. And maybe there is no one truth commission to be held in the United States. Uh, Maybe there are many truth commissions that ought to be initiated in communities across across the country. And all of these activities, all of these, the books that are coming out uh, now, I call it the reckoning, are ultimately going to climax in some uh, effort fully to understand our, our past, not just be, uh, because it is our past and, and therefore it's us and we need to understand it, but also understand it because, because for what it shows us about our current realities. Um, so, you know, I look at violence, for example, in the Jim Crow South, not just because I want to tell the story of what happened then. We need to understand that just as much as we need to understand what happened between 1861 and 1865, just as much as we need to understand what happened when our folks went off to World War II. That's just, a, it's an important uh, and critical moment of history um, that especially we as lawyers uh, need to understand because of the ways it distorted our legal system. Um, so so there's that, um, but uh, so, so it's, it's it, what, I, what I'm trying to do here is understand Um, the history in which the violence took place. And I'm also trying to historicize violence, by which I mean uh, understand how George Floyd, too, uh, could have reprised the the same uh, circumstances that led to the death of George Floyd, one. So historicizing today's violence by understanding the history, but also undertaking the history for what it tells us about the past. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. When we return, I'll be talking to Margaret about the crime of kidnapping. A website from Civil fills your new client pipeline. Prospects find you through powerful SEO 
and smart intake forms make it easy to integrate with Clio, Smokeball, Lawmatics, and MyCase. Never lose another lead. Get your civil bundle. Website, SEO, content marketing, and Google business profile management free for 60 days from the legal industry's best end-to-end lead generation platform. Book your demo at getcivil.com. That's getcivill.com. Welcome back to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, Lee Rawls, here with Margaret Burnham, author of By Hands Now Known, Jim Crow's Legal Executioners. And Margaret, you pulled out one type of crime in particular to discuss in your book, the crime of kidnapping. How did you discuss this and, and what's its import in your book? Right. So abduction, kidnapping, taking a person from a place where they have a right to be is a serious crime in, in, in the American experience and in the American code book, actually a capital crime in, some, in many jurisdictions. I argue in the book that kidnapping was a race as a crime that could be applied when a white person required a black person to go with me. And the paradigmatic case of this, obviously, is uh, the Emmett Till case. Emmett Till is obviously taken uh, from his uh, grandfather's home in uh, Money, Mississippi. uh, And we all know what happened. And we also also know that the the charge of murder uh, did not, the prosecution did not prevail on the charge of murder. I agree. There's another charge here, which was never preferred against the uh, defendants in the Emmett Till case, uh, and that's kidnapping. And what I, I use a number of cases from Southwest Mississippi. I, you know, the the the, the book uses uh, a particular jurisdictions to tell particular stories, and here I use uh, cases from Southwest Mississippi to describe the ways in which uh, kidnapping is, in effect, erased from the book when you're dealing with, from the cold book when you're dealing with black folks. And I argue that this is a legacy of slavery. Black people, uh, whether enslaved or, or, or not, had to respond to a command by a white person during the days of slavery to go uh, and to do uh, what that white person said to do. And this is true um, really across across the country, although obviously reinforced by um, those uh, by by the rules, the rules that govern the slave states. So I argue that this is a legacy that resides uh, on both sides, on both sides of the racial line um, that white people knew they could command black people uh, to follow their commands and black people knew they had to submit uh, and that, that this is carried over over the years uh, uh, and through slavery uh, and that it had a profound effect on the law and essentially immunizes, provides an immunizing whites who kidnap uh, black in the same in blacks in the same way that, you know, you could have a uh, protection against uh, testifying against a wife or uh, or or, um, you know, provide uh, other forms of um, of uh, of uh, immunization in the law. And I argue that that's, that's essentially, this is essentially what happened um, with respect to with respect to kidnapping. And when you talk about laws that stem from the era of slavery, of the Fugitive Slave Act, you actually start out the book with talking about the concept of rendition. And some of the people who had the power to do so chose not to send people back to the South when it was known 
that they would not have their civil rights uh, respected. Could you talk about rendition and why you felt it was important to start out the book with that? So thanks, Lisa. Yes, I do start. That's my first chapter in the book. And in a sense, the book travels chronologically, roughly chronologically, as well as uses particular geographical areas to tell particular stories. In the rendition chapter, I focus on Detroit as a destination. Uh, And here I tell three stories of uh, folks running uh, from violence and uh, possible lynching in the South to and ending up in the same area in Detroit. What I seek to do in this chapter is lift up the relationship between the emerging African-American legal community in Detroit uh, and those communities in the South where people from from whence people are fleeing. Uh, And so you have a rendition. Rendition is a fairly complex legal proceeding, intricate um, legal processes that involve, you know, appeals both to courts and to gubernatorial offices, one or the other. Involve the law of uh, of at least two states, the laws of at least two states, uh, and federal laws as well. And there's a small group of lawyers who mastered this, including one African-American lawyer who handled, he said, a hundred cases of uh, rendition uh, or, you know, in other words, we also use the word extradition to describe these cases where individuals are sought uh, by uh, one jurisdiction and the other jurisdiction is uh, reluctant or is being pushed not to send the person back south. Um, So in Detroit, it gives me an opportunity to talk about the relationship between a community that has uh, a modicum of political power, Michigan, Folks are voting. Uh, they have been voting for years. Um, they have a middle, you know, a, a, a an active middle class. They have the largest NAACP chapter uh, in the country. They have unions, uh, and so they're able to provide sanctuary, not just the physical sanctuary um, that all refugees need, uh, but as well um, the legal infrastructure necessary to protect these folks uh, who are escaping Jim Crow lynchings and Jim Crow violence. I do think it's pretty unsurprising that the first black president of the ABA came from this Detroit area legal community. Like you said, it it has traditions dating back. Yes. So, so far. Yes. Um, Dennis Archer, I believe is who you're speaking about. Mm -hmm. Uh, And yes, that's that's notable. And it also, again, is a indicia of the enormous strength of the legal community, African-American legal community in Detroit, in the Midwest in general, in Chicago um, and Detroit. But these communities really go way back. So as soon as uh, African-Americans had access to legal education, um, they took advantage of it. As I said at the outset, Lee, think about getting in, either getting in trouble or having your rights violated, even violently violated by homicidal violence and not being able to turn to a lawyer who could understand your plight, could sympathize with your plight, and could you know, fight tooth and nail and give a thousand percent. And that was the reality in the South. Uh, and so these escapees, uh, refugees from Southern justice, found you know, uh, respite and support uh, in these legal communities, these emerging uh, legal communities uh, in the North. And as I said, one particular 
particular lawyers, his name was William Henry Huff, really spent a, a good deal of his um, life working on these cases, developed his legal career really around these cases. So now another question I have for you is what the legal community should be considering and discussing when it comes to how we can look back at the legal structures that have been built that, as you say, were tainted by the legacy of Jim Crow and think about how we can redesign or upset or replace them. You know, you teach for the Northeastern University School of Law. You've been a longtime lawyer. You've, you've seen these very powerful Black-led legal communities form and be successful using the law as their base. But as we reckon with all the harm that was done under the cover of law often, how do you think we should talk about reforming the legal system, the legal community? What are the conversations that should be taking place? That's a great question, uh, Lee. And and I do think and we call our project Civil Rights and Restorative Justice. And we, when we talk about restorative justice, we really are talking about how can justice denied so long ago actually be restored. So we're not talking so much about the kind of circle practice that has become so well known and so essential in displacing uh, or supplementing the kind of justice that uh, or injustice that is typical in our courtrooms today. But rather, what can we do at this at this level? Uh, at this point in time. And this is a question that has to be answered at the community at you know many at multiple levels. It has the communities have to grapple with this. Returning these documents to communities as we are doing, providing uh, commu- uh, communities with opportunities to reclaim their history as organizations such such as EJI uh, is doing. All of this uh, work is essential. It's essential, but it's not it's not sufficient. There has to be some federal initiative that really takes a, a an official close look beyond what academics have done, but certainly incorporating what academics such as myself have done, uh, but an official uh, close look at what transpired and seek to provide adequate, comprehensive remedies today. As you were talking about earlier, um, any of my listeners can go to the Burnham Nobles Digital Archive. You find that at crrjarchive.org. And Margaret, if people were interested in getting the book or reaching out, finding out more from you, is there a website that you would recommend they go to? Our website is crrj.org. And I am easily reachable through the Northeastern Law School website and always delighted to hear from folks, especially folks in my legal community, my broad global legal community uh, who have read the book or uh, have comments on the work and want to participate in some way. And thank you to my listeners for joining us for this episode of the Modern Law Library. Please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite listening service.